All right. Open up to Hebrews, if you would. Hebrews chapter 13, actually. We're going to start at the end. Hebrews chapter 13. We've got a lot to do in a short time, so let's, let's get to it. There's some kind of obvious questions as we start thinking about the book of Hebrews. And the first one that you all may be thinking about is, who wrote this book? And, of course, the answer is we don't know, right? We don't know. Uh, for a long time, it was kind of assumed that Paul wrote it. Most people Paul, thought that Paul wrote it. And if you look at the end of chapter 13 there, look at verses 23 and, uh, and 24. It says, Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. And greet all of your leaders and all of the saints, those from Italy, greet you. Grace be with you all. And so there's some reason there to think that maybe Paul wrote it, right? He's talking about Timothy. We know that Paul and Timothy were companions. We know that Paul left Timothy in, a, uh, in, uh, in Ephesus and, and wrote those letters to him. And we know that Timothy was with Paul in some of his other, um, uh, some of his other letters uh, Timothy's mentioned where he's traveling with Paul. Uh, we also know that Paul spent some time in, in Rome, in Italy. We know that he was in prison there. Uh, we think, we know at least once, we think probably twice, uh, and so, uh, so there's some good reason to think that maybe Paul wrote, wrote Hebrews. Uh, but there's also some good reason to think that maybe Paul didn't write Hebrews. Uh, and one of them is that the book of Hebrews doesn't say who wrote it, right? And all the other letters we have from Paul do say that Paul wrote them. Paul seems to have been in the habit of signing his letters and taking credit for them himself, naming himself in, in his letters, and in this one he didn't. And so if this one were by Paul, it would be the only one where he didn't name himself in it. Um, also, this, this letter uh, seems to be very, very Jewish in nature, right? It talks a, lot about, uh, talks a lot about the priests and about the priesthood. It talks a lot about uh, prophets. It talks a lot about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. A lot of, lot of, lot of Old Testament references in this book. Uh, and we know Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles, not the apostle to the Jews, right? Peter was the one who, who went to the Jews initially. And so, so there's reason to think that Paul uh, maybe didn't write it. And so the, in the end, we don't know who wrote it, right? We, we really can't say for sure. We don't really know. Uh, a long, for a long time, people thought it was Paul. More recently, most Bible scholars think that it probably was not Paul. Uh, and some have suggested maybe it was Apollos. We hear about Apollos in Acts. He was another companion of Paul. And some, some people suggested maybe, maybe Apollos wrote it. Uh, some people have suggested maybe, uh, maybe Luke wrote it, the same Luke that wrote the, the Gospel of Luke and, and Acts. Um, but in the end, we, we don't know, right? We don't know who wrote uh, the book of Hebrews. We do know that the, that the Holy Spirit was writing it, right? The Lord was superintending the efforts of whoever it was that, that wrote it. Uh, but we don't know for sure who wrote it. We also don't really know for sure when it was written. Uh, we don't know. Except we do know, back to verse 23, we do know that whenever it was written, it seems like Timothy was still alive. Right? Because whoever wrote it says, uh, take notice that, that Timothy's been released. And, and so Timothy is still alive at this point. So it must have been pretty early on. A lot of people think maybe like in the AD 60s is when it was written, which would have been about 30 years after Jesus' death. Uh, but again, we don't know for sure. But it does seem like it was early on, uh, early on after the, the beginning of the early church. Um, again, we don't know who it was written to. It seems like it was written to, uh, to Jewish Christians because it talks a lot about the, the, 
the Old Testament and the Jewish roots. Um, in in verse, verse 24 there at the end of chapter 13, uh, it says to greet all your leaders and all the saints, those from Italy greet you. And so it could be that the writer is writing from Italy to a group of, of Roman Christians that have gone out into other parts of the world. Or it could be that the writer is in another place and he's writing to the church in Rome and he's got some people from Rome with him and he's saying, your brothers from Italy greet you. Your, the brothers that are with me send greetings to you. And so maybe he's writing to the Roman church. Uh, we do know that there were some Jewish people in the Roman church. Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, he addresses Jews in, in that letter. So perhaps it, it, it was written to Rome. But again, we don't really, we don't really know for sure. A lot of mystery in, in this book, right? And in fact, I keep saying letter, uh, I've been saying book a lot. I've said letter a few times. We don't even really know if it was a letter, right? Uh, in some ways, it seems kind of like a letter. It reads kind of like a letter in some ways, but it, in other ways, it doesn't, right? The ending here kind of sounds like a letter uh, where he's saying send readings to different people and that kind of thing. Uh, but the beginning doesn't seem like a letter. At least it doesn't seem like Paul's letters or Peter's letters or, uh, or, or James's letter. Um, and so some people think it was a letter. Some people think maybe it was a, a sermon that was written down and then passed around to different, different places. Uh, but in the end, we, again, we don't know. It's kind of a, kind of a big mystery. There's some key passages in the, in the book of Hebrews that you're probably familiar with or, or maybe should be familiar with. In uh, chapter 4, verse 12, is that kind of uh, well-known passage where uh, it talks about the, the word of God being a, a double-edged sword. Right, that, that pierces through bone and marrow. Um, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, we read these warning passages that we're kind of familiar with, uh, where, uh, where the writer warns people against falling away, and we've had big discussions about that, about what those passages uh, mean and how we understand those passages. In chapter 11 is the famous Hall of Faith chapter, where all these, uh, all these saints from the Old Testament are there uh, and are commended for their faith. Uh, and then in chapter 12, we read about Jesus being the author and perfecter of our faith and, and the example for us to follow. So there's lots of kind of key passages, well-known passages that have served the church well over, over time that you may be familiar with. Uh, but I don't want to look at any of those really tonight. What I want to focus on is uh, just the main theme of the, of the letter itself, the overall full letter. And here, here's what the letter's about. Here's the, here's the main theme of the letter or the book of, of Hebrews. It is the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. This is what the author is wanting us to see, what the author is wanting us to know, what the author is trying to teach us is the supremacy of Christ. And I want to I show just in, the, in a quick few minutes here, I want to show three areas where Jesus is better. Three areas where Jesus is is supreme okay and so first number one jesus uh the writer tells us jesus is the better prophet or the better revelation of god he's a better prophet or a better revelation of god i read the first three verses to start our service to, tonight but uh this is how the how the book opens up it says that in the past god used to speak to his people long ago uh through the prophets in in many different ways but now today he has spoken to us through his son. In the past he spoke through prophets. In the past he spoke through different ways. Some was direct speech to them. Some was through visions. Some was through dreams, those kind of things. He spoke to them in different ways through prophets. Today, though, he has spoken to us directly through his son, Jesus. 
And it says that Jesus is the exact representation of who God is, the radiance of his glory, and the exact representation of his nature. If we want to see God, we look to Jesus. I think of John chapter 1, where, the, uh, where John tells us that, that Jesus is um, uh, the word there with God, and, and, and he was God, but he became flesh and dwelt among us, right? No one's ever seen the Father, but the, the God who's at his side has, has made him known. Jesus is the better revelation of the Father, the better revelation of God. Uh, Hebrews tells us that Jesus is superior to Moses. He's the better prophet, the one who reveals God to us. Uh, there's a passage in Deuteronomy 18. We don't have time to read it this morning or this evening, but there's a passage in Deuteronomy 18 where God uh, prophesies to Moses or through Moses to the people and says, there's coming a day when I'm going to give you a better prophet, a prophet like Moses, and I'm going to reveal myself to him and you're going to listen to him. And I think this is talking about Jesus. And here in Hebrews, the writer tells us that Jesus is the better prophet, better than Moses, higher than Moses. And the reason he's better than Moses is because he is the perfect representation of God. We look to him to see God. If you want to know what God's like, we look to Jesus. If you want to know what, uh, what God likes, look to Jesus. If you want to know what God is for, look to Jesus. You want to know what God's against? Look to Jesus. Jesus is the better revelation. But secondly, Jesus is the better priest. He's the better prophet, the better revelation. He's also the better priest. And so we think about a prophet. A prophet is someone who stands between men and God, but he kind of stands on God's side, right? He's the, he's the spokesman for God. He speaks on behalf of God to the people. A priest does the opposite. A priest stands between God and men, but a priest stands kind of on on man's side. And a priest is the spokesperson for man to God. He's the mediator between God and men, but he speaks for man and he operates for man. He offers sacrifices for people. He approaches God for people. And Hebrew says that Jesus is the better priest. Look to chapter 4. We're going to try to go through, through this quickly. We're going to see lots of, lots of stuff here. First of all, we see that Jesus is a better priest because he's a priest that can sympathize with our weaknesses. In chapter 4, verse 14 and 15, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. He's a priest that can sympathize with us. He is, a, he is a man like us. He has taken on flesh like us. He has been tempted like we have. And because of that, chapter 5, verse 2 says, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided, since he himself, uh, since he himself also is beset with weakness, since he's taken on humanity. He can be gentle with us, because he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Secondly, Jesus is a better priest because, uh, because he's a perfect priest. He's a priest who is perfect. Look again to chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He's been tempted like us in every way, and yet without sinning. He's a perfect high priest. Uh, there's no need for him to offer sacrifices for his own sins. In the Old Covenant, the, uh, 
prophet or the priest would have to offer sacrifices to cover his own sin first. Here in the beginning of chapter 5, that's not the case anymore for Jesus. And because of his perfection, because he is a perfect priest, chapter 5 verse 7 says uh, he is able to save him from death and he has heard because of his piety. Because of his piety, because of his holiness, because of his perfection, he is he has heard when he speaks on our behalf. He's a better priest because he's perfect. Thirdly, he's a better priest uh, because he's an eternal priest. This is a really big point in the book of Hebrews. He's an eternal priest. In chapter 7, look at chapter 7. In chapter 7, verse 23, we begin to see this. <coughs> the former priests kept dying and needing to be replaced. They would serve for a number of years and then they would die and they would have to be replaced by a new priest. But Hebrews says that Jesus holds his priesthood forever. He represents us eternally before God, and he, and he mediates for us eternally before God. And because of that, his mediation is eternal. He saves forever, chapter 7, verse 25 says. Therefore, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Uh, chapter 7, verse 27 says... Uh, he does not need daily like the other high priest to offer sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he died once for all when he offered up himself. And so he's an eternal priest. And then, and then fourthly, he's a better priest because he's a priest of a better covenant. He's a priest of a better covenant. We don't have a whole lot of time to, to talk a lot about this tonight, but I, but I wish you would look at, 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 at chapter 8, verses 6 through uh, through 15 or so. Uh, he, is a, he is a better priest because he is the priest of a better covenant. The old covenant was filled with promises. The new covenant uh, sees those promises realized in Jesus. Look, just look to chapter 8, verse 15 as an example. Uh, that's, a, that's a mistake. There is no chapter 8, verse 15, is there? Uh, look to chapter 8, verse 13. Uh, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now even, verse nine, chapter 9, now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary, and, and it goes on from there. And look down to, uh, to chapter 9, verse 15. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant... Those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Through Jesus, through Jesus' priesthood, we receive the promises that were made in the old covenants. We receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So Jesus is a better priest. Thirdly, I want to say Jesus is a better sacrifice. He's a better prophet, a better revelation. He's a better priest. And then finally, he's a better sacrifice. Look at chapter 10, uh, the first few verses there. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. There was a deficiency in the old covenant. A deficiency in the old sacrifices. They can never make perfect those who draw near. They can cover sins for a time, but they have to keep being repeated over and over and over because they can't fully remove sins. But Jesus offers a 
better sacrifice. Look back to chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of, of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He entered through his own blood. He entered through a better sacrifice. And because of that, he can save eternally by the sacrifice of himself, a better sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. Uh, having been offered once for all, he can remove sins. Chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await for him. Having appeared once, having offered himself once for the sins of many. And finally, look at chapter 10, verse 12. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Note, he offered one sacrifice, right? It's not a continuing sacrifice. It's not a yearly sacrifice. It's not something that has to be repeated over and over and over to keep covering new sins and new sins and new sins. No, he offered one sacrifice. And he offered this one sacrifice for sins, and he offered it for all time, never to be repeated. And when he was finished, he sat down. And he sat down because he was finished. He sat down because it was over. Think of the words on the cross. It is finished, right? He's a better sacrifice because he has done what the old sacrifices pointed to. He can fully cover sin and he can fully remove our guilt. He's a better revelation, a better prophet, He's a better priest, and he's a better sacrifice, the supremacy of Christ. As we think about those things, I want to read to you in closing, Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. And some of these verses may be familiar to you. Part of this passage is going to be pretty familiar to you, I think. Uh, but, but think about it in terms of Jesus' supremacy above all things and think about it think about it in terms of Jesus being a better revelation of God a better prophet who reveals God to us think about it in light of Jesus being a better priest uh, who offers or who uh, presides over a better covenant and think about it in terms of Jesus as a better sacrifice for us and listen to these words chapter 10 verse 19 therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Amen. I'm going to use a stool to prevent from getting too tired. While I'm here, I'm still not 100%, so I hope you guys will appreciate that. If I fall over, just sit me back up and we'll, we'll finish. <laughs> Uh, 
As we turn our attention now to uh, the Gospel of James, um, I want us to uh, take the time that we have remaining and, and, and do um, as much justice as we can to, uh, to covering all that James has said to us. Um, the, uh, the book of James is, is uh, generally believed to be, have, have been written by James, the younger half-brother of Jesus. There are multiple James listed in Scripture, and we could discuss the, the Jameses, but in order to, uh, to make sure that we leave enough time for the meat of, uh, of our discussion tonight, we'll, uh, we'll say that uh, generally accepted uh, authorship of James is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, this book is considered to be one of the earliest writings in the New Testament. Uh, as, as James was, uh, was martyred, uh, he, uh, he would have had his writing um, sometime in like the 45 to 50 uh, time frame is generally accepted writing for this. So he's writing just before the Apostle Paul is, is doing his writings. Um, there are some interesting discussions as we start talking about uh, James uh, being the brother of Jesus. As, as you know from reading in Scripture, uh, he was not uh, a believer and supporter necessarily of Jesus' earthly ministry. Not that he wasn't there, not that he wasn't present and, and hearing the teachings. We believe that he was probably present uh, at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the, the reason that we believe that is if you look at the structure of James uh, in his writing here, it very closely parallels what you see in the teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. And we do know that the James and his uh, mother and, and, and uh, additional siblings were present at different times as Jesus taught. Uh, James would become a believer, obviously, in uh, in Jesus, uh, after the uh, crucifixion and, and subsequent resurrection of our Lord and Savior, um, and and James becomes an ardent leader in the church and becomes uh, one of the pillars of the church that Paul talks about in the early church in Jerusalem. Uh, as James is writing his letter here, he gives us in his introduction uh, in James chapter one, he says, "James, a servant of God." and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad greetings. And in his, his greeting here, he's telling us that he's writing a general epistle. He's not writing to a specific group like we might see if we were reading in Ephesians. Paul is writing to Ephesians. And if he's writing to Galatians, he's writing to the church in Galatia. So James fits into the general epistles that were written to the church abroad that had been dispersed uh, across the known world. These would have been uh, Christian uh, uh, Jews who would have been dispersed, and he is writing to encourage them. He's also writing to educate them. He's also writing to spur them on to right living. Uh, in James's writing, we have lots that James uh, instructs, and if you were to count, you would see some 60 obligations or, um, or commands that you receive from James in only his 108 verses. Uh, so he has a lot to say. It's very practical uh, in, in its application. It's very easy to read. And um, I think that we benefit greatly from its inclusion in the canon of Scripture. Now, historically, there have been some who have viewed James's teachings on faith and works to be in contradiction uh, to Paul's teachings. 
But when we read scripture, we need to remember that if God is the one who has revealed, if God is the one who has breathed out the scripture, God is not going to contradict himself. And so when we see contradictions, as we have talked about many times before, we are to read scripture with an eye toward, toward what is this scripture saying that is in concert with the other portions of scripture. It is only good biblical theology for us to approach the scripture, seeing it as one cohesive message that was revealed to us by God. And as we do that, we quickly are able to see how Paul and James are not in disagreement. Paul and James are actually in agreement. They're just giving us a full picture of what it means for someone to be justified and saved. And James, the, things that, the thing that he is giving us uh, that, that is in addition and in, in, in connection with what Paul is teaching, is that uh, in Paul's emphasis on our justification through faith, James shows us that works are going, going to flow or be an evidence to our justification by faith. So as we, as we continue in our discussion on this book, I'm, I'm going to give you a couple, I'll give you an outline that, that, that I believe helps us with reading and understanding James, and then we're going to spend most of our time talking about this justification by faith and then the, the works that flow from that justification and faith. We don't want to get those separate and begin to think about being justified by our works because then that would be a works-based faith, and that would be wrong, right? That, that would be putting us back under the law. And as James is writing to those who would have been Jewish believers, they would have been very familiar with the law, right? They, they would have lived under the law. And he is not trying to put them back under the law. He is trying to, see, or trying to help them see that it is not a works-based faith. However, it is an overflowing of love that comes from what God has done for us, that we are to show works out of our faith. They're not out of compulsion. They're out of love. So some important verses, if we were to, to kind of look at some important or key verses uh, in James uh, before we get to the outline, I would say that um, James, in writing to the church, is, is going to encourage people who are going through trials. So we would see James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, when he talks about counting it all joy as you meet trials of various kinds and the testing of your faith producing steadfastness. We would see that as an encouragement. James chapter 1, verse 22, where he talks about being doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. James chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, where he says, In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Important verses for us to note in James. And then again, James chapter 3, verse 5, where he's talking about the tongue, which I guarantee is something that all of us have a problem with. James has a long treatise on handling the tongue in chapter 3. And verse 5 talks about how it's a small part of our body, but it makes great boasts and is able to set on fire the course of a person's life. So let's look at an outline for James as we, uh, we were going to study. Um, these are not uh, prescriptive, meaning they're not in Scripture. These are things that I have uh, pieced together from looking at outlines uh, from, from other uh, biblical scholars that I trust. Um, I, I would say that if we, can, we can break it up basically into six pieces. 
Uh, and there are some subpoints. I'm not going to give you all the subpoints. If you're interested in that, we can talk about that later. But I'm going to give you, you know, kind of six six things. So first would be his greeting, right? Greetings are important. It tells us about the author. It tells us about the location, that time. So the greeting is going to be the first one, and that's chapter one, just verse one. Second, we look at the enduring of trials and temptations. James deals with this in chapter one, verse two through 18. Three would be application of the word. And James discusses this in chapter 1, verse 19, and then he goes through chapter 2, verse 26, talking about the application of the word. Number four is words and wisdom. That's James chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. And in that section is where he is going to be talking about the tongue, specifically in the first 12 verses there. Number five is warnings against worldliness. This includes hostility before, uh, toward God, humility before God. And number six is blessings. And that's James 5 and then uh, verse 7 through to the end. And there he gives blessings for patience and prayer and other things. All right, so let's spend the, 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 the balance of our time here looking at two specific areas. And if you want to turn in James, turn to James chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 22 through 25. And we're going to talk about being doers and not hearers only. Now, the reason that I'm going here first, just, just to, to make sure that you're, you're following along with my thought process on this, James gives us this being a, a doer and not a hearer only prior to getting into the discussion about showing faith and works. I believe that as we look at the structure of this book, these two things, the being a doer and not a hearer only, and then showing a faith by works are the things that everything else that he writes about hang on. I believe that because as we start to think about what does it mean to control our tongue, what does it mean to have humility before God, what does it mean to take care of widows and orphans, what does it mean for us to have all of these practical commands that he gives us, these 60-some other practical commands he gives us, we only have an understanding or a frame of reference on that if we understand what it means to be a doer and not a hearer only. And we also have to understand what it means to be doing it from the right motivation and the right heart. Because it is very easy for us, if we were early Jewish believers who had converted to following of Jesus Christ and, and we were used to this law, it would be easy for us to begin to think, I have to do these things. This is a legalistic checkbox works-based faith. And so I'm now going to do these things that I have been given to do by James. I am now going to consider them my new set of Levitical law. And I believe it's important for us to understand that that is not what he is doing. That is not the structure that he's setting up. What he is saying is these are the things that we ought to be doing because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. We have been set free, and so in our freedom, we are now going to do these things out of love and obedience to our Lord. So let's look at these verses here in, in chapter 1, 22 through 25, and, and then we'll move on to um, the showing of faith through works. So James 1.22 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. 
But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not forgetful here, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. We are to be those who know the word. We are to be in the word. We are to be doers of the word, not hearers only. In our day and time, as we look at what it looks like in America, as we start to make some application for the United States, uh, if you were to look at surveys that have been done on people who claim to be Christians, there are approximately 60 to 63% of the U.S. population that claim to have some sort of affiliation with Christianity. They claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at that in a practical sense, what does that look like for church attendance? Church attendance, however, is some 30% lower. What does it look like for us to be a hearer and not a doer? I would say it looks like 30%. For those who know, they claim to have an affiliation with the Lord as their Lord and Savior, but they can't attend church once a month. Now, we want to be careful because I don't want anybody raising their hand and saying, church attendance is not the same thing as salvation. That's exactly right. But I would say that obedience to our Lord is part of following Jesus Christ. And if he has commanded us not to forsake the meeting together of one another, it is very concerning. I've told many, many people this. I tell my Sunday school class this all the time. I am not a discerner of what is going on in a person's heart. And I thank God for that. I thank God that is is his job and his job alone to discern what is going on in our hearts. It is his job and his job alone to discern who is the believer. But I can observe things that I see on the outside. And if someone tells me that they are a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, but they don't attend church at all, and they live and conduct their life the way that the world does and not like a follower of Jesus Christ does, I have my doubts about their profession of faith. That doesn't mean that they're not saved. It doesn't mean that I think any less of them necessarily. It just means that in my, in my estimation, my observance of their life, I would have cause to be concerned for them. As a follower of Jesus Christ who never attends church and does not live the way that Christ has commanded them to live. Now, again, we're not saying that this is compulsory. We're not saying that this is a legalistic system. We're saying that these are things that people ought to do as followers of Jesus Christ. These are things that we should see. These are fruits that we should see. And there is cause for concern when we see people being hearers only. As pastors, it is one of our greatest concerns that we see people who are hearers only and who do not respond to the gospel, that they do not respond to strong teaching from God's word, who do not live out Christian lives. It is our sincere concern for their eternal security. And I believe as James is writing this, it is his concern that people live out the Christian life. Moving on to the second one. This is the showing of faith by works. This is in James chapter 2. There's a long section here. We're just going to start in, in verse 14. And again, I believe that discussion of hearers and not doers or hearers only and not doers sets up this later uh, longer treatment on faith and works. In chapter 2, verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such a faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, 
but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. Now, we, we can have a much deeper discussion on this and, and to talk about uh, are, are we saying that you have to give clothes to someone or you have to give food to someone to prove? No, that, that would be false, right? We would disagree with that. We would say that's a works-based faith. But the point that he is making and the point that we need to understand is that if we claim to have faith and we see people in need and we say, oh, well, I hope things go well for you, have we shown that we have faith? What good is our faith if our faith doesn't cause us to respond in those situations with action? We would, we would argue, we would argue that it is, it is something that we should be motivated to do by the Holy Spirit working within us who have faith to respond in those situations, to respond in action. I believe if we look in, at things that the Apostle Paul has said, in his writings, that we will see that he also agrees. In Galatians uh, chapter 2, verse 16, he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. James agrees with that. James chapter 2, verse 10, he says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of the whole thing. James knows that no one is perfect. James is not arguing that we need a works-based faith. He just wants us to have a faith that works. I think the, thing that, the, the, the scripture that ties these two together, if we look in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10, and Paul, again writing, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So let's, let's put those things together. We're saved by grace, through faith, not a result of works, and we are created for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So as we look at James's teaching about faith and works, and we understand that it is works that come from a faith that is within us, a faith that is, that is given to us, it is a gift of God, it is not the result of us doing these things, we understand that we are to respond to what God has done for us in love and in faithfulness and in service to him working out and doing the good works which he has prepared ahead of time for us to do. And it is then that we can begin to understand the rest of what James has to say about controlling our tongue, ministering to widows, ministering to orphans, doing the good that God has prepared for us ahead of time to do. A saving faith is a working faith. A living faith is reflected in faithful living. James is full of practical, practical application and knowledge. It is a wonderful, wonderful read. It is a convicting read. And as we read James and we see 
as he talks specifically, the things that, that convict me the most are the, the dealings with the tongue. We can understand that it's every Christian that struggles with that. We can understand that it is every single one of us that is going to struggle with a works-based faith. And, and it's easy for us to understand as we read it in full context, we read it in conjunction with what Paul has said in Galatians and Ephesians elsewhere, that James is not teaching a works-based faith. He is merely teaching us to have a faith that works. Please join me as we, we close, in, close in prayer this evening. Lord God, we thank you for Hebrews. We thank you for James. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that you have shown us that Jesus is supreme, that, that Jesus is better. We thank you, Lord, that you have, you have shown us in, in, in James this evening that we are to have a faith that works. And we thank you, Lord, for, for these books. We thank you for preserving them for, for us, Lord. We thank you for, for helping us learn to be more like Christ through reading them. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand and apply all that you have given us. We pray that you would be with us as we go throughout this week. We pray, Lord, that you would, would bless us, bring us back here at the next appointed time. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. You all